0: We are in Mark chapter 4, once again, and we have come as far as verse 35, where it says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. This is Jesus speaking. And when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. That's an interesting phrase, as he was. I never really had noticed that until I went through this time. And, you know, how was he? Well, he was exhausted, yeah. And, you know, the idea is they took him just as he was. They didn't go back to the land. They just took off because he was out teaching in the boat, teaching from the boat. And so they just took him as he was. And somebody's made the, the point, we always have to take him as he is. We can't take him as we want him to be or as we imagine him to be. Uh, we've got to take Jesus as he is. That's the only Jesus there is. And anything else makes him another another Jesus. And so uh, the other little boats were with him. So there was more than just the boat they were in. This was one of their fishing boats, probably 20, 25 feet long. And um, you know, they would be out fishing in the Sea of Galilee, which is where they are. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Uh, Some uh, records of this say it was already full. So, you know, the boat is being swamped is the situation. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. (laughs) And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then he arose and rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace. Be still, and this uh, "be still" that's the same word he gave to the um, demons in Mark one when he and it, it means to be muzzled. So he didn't allow them to speak. He said, "Be muzzled," and so you know they couldn't speak. And so he says this to the to the sea: "Be muzzled." So you know that would indicate maybe there's a spiritual aspect to this storm that's taking place. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see him, you know, speaking to each other in the boat. Who is this guy? So, after a long day of teaching the people, evening has come and Jesus wants to cross the Sea of Galilee from the upper western shore to the east or likely to the southeast. Uh, we'll see in chapter 5 he's headed for a place called the Gadarenes. And they were crossing the sea. As they were crossing the sea, this great windstorm arose. Now, I know some of you have been to Israel. Anybody have been to the Sea of Galilee? Did you go when you there, yeah. Debbie, Debbie? went. Did you see any storms on the Sea of Galilee? No. I, talk about I talked about him. Yeah. I was listening to somebody this week, and they were talking about um, when they go. He says, "Don't don't worry if they're going this fall or something." He said, "Don't worry. If there's a storm on the lake, we won't go out <laughs> uh, because the yes." Yeah. And he sees the, uh, he's seen the seas there at the six or seven feet and, and, of the waves. And they get higher than that, you know, in some of these storms. Uh, so wind storms are a frequent occurrence on the lake of Gennesaret, as it's also called, or the Sea of Tiberias. These are different names for it. And when the wind picks up, it can produce large waves and very dangerous traveling conditions. This is what we see in this instance. The waves were actually coming into the boat. If enough water gets into the boat, the boat will begin to sink. And the closer it is to sinking, the greater likelihood it will sink, and the sooner the likelihood. So the apostles are in no doubt. They're no doubt fighting the waves. They're rowing with all their strength, trying to reach the shore. Some may be baling water. There's no such thing as a motor. This is all manpower, and their situation seems extremely perilous. I haven't been to Israel or the Sea of Galilee, but I can relate to the experience of these men. I've told you about this before, but not in this kind of detail. When I was a child, my family was an Ohio River boating family. River rats was the common term for we folk. We began spending summer weekends on the river when I was five or six years old. My family had stopped attending church when my father, he was my stepfather, but he was the only dad I've ever known, and so we stopped attending when my dad was offended by an ultimatum that some of the elders uh, from the church gave him concerning tithing. My uncle on dad's side of the family was the pastor of the church we attended. And my dad made a pledge, probably under pressure, you know how those things go, that he would give such and such an amount to the church. And one evening the elders visited our house and told my dad that if he did not catch up on his tithes, that his name would be removed from the membership books. I was just a little guy, but I could almost see the steam coming out of his ears when they said that. He replied, well, take it off then. And shortly after they left, you know. Now, it's good to keep your pledges. If you make a pledge, you should keep your pledges. Matthew 5.37, that your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So you don't want to make a pledge, but if you make a pledge, you ought to keep it. Well, it wasn't too long after this that one of my uncles showed up with a motorboat that you could ski behind, and we began decades of river recreation. This was on my mother's side of the family. My dad eventually bought a thin hulled fiberglass boat, and probably, you know, and now we had our own transport. Eventually, we upgraded, you know, went to bigger boats. But this is a little, maybe a 15 foot motorboat. We spent most weekends camping on sandy beached islands in the Ohio River. And eventually we bought a river camp. Some of you enjoyed the fish fries we would have there after my parents' conversion. And my dad would go out and he'd catch two tiny fish and then he'd stop. <laughs> <laughs> now We never experienced any multiplications of food, but definitely multiplications of mouths. <laughs> But we were on an island beach one day down the river from Dress Plaza when the sky began to darken. And we were apparently unaware of any stormy weather forecast. I was under 10 years old since my brother had not yet been born. And at some point it was decided we would try to get back to the plaza where we launched the boat in those days rather than try to ride out the storm on the island. We went through a number of storms on the island. Sometimes a windstorm. The sand would be whirling through the air. And I remember this was after my brother was born. One time we were on an island like that and a windstorm came up. And so everybody's huddled in these makeshift tents that we would make with tarpaulins. And they got my brother all wrapped up, you know. and He was six months old or so. And so Mom's holding him, you know. And my sister always recounts this that so when they got done and they unwrapped him, all you could see was his eyes. And the rest of him was... The rest of them was covered with sand. You know. So they apparently they... I thought we could outrun the storm to get back to the boat ramp. And so we took off and it got darker and darker and the wind picked up precipitously and it started to rain. A downpour. And the water was very rough due to the wind. but. Not extremely bad until we approached the Horseshoe Bend. And when we came around the bend toward the plaza, the waves became very large. I would say three to four feet. I was a, I was a child. I could be exaggerated, But this I've never seen the Ohio River as bad as it was. And of course, we're in the middle of it, which makes it look worse. And then there are troughs between these waves. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat in a storm with the boat alternately crashing up a wave and then crashing down into a gully. I mean, the point of your boat's up here and then the water's down here and it's wham, you know. Waves washing over the bow of the boat as you're going down into a wave. The boat sometimes slipping sideways and this was the real concern. You'd You'd come down on a wave and... And water would actually, the side of the boat, We go into the wave and water starts to come in. We thought that we'd be going down. The fear was tremendous. So I can relate to what the apostles are experiencing, but Jesus was not visibly in the boat with us. God did help us. We did call out to Him, although we did not know Him. And He graciously brought us back to solid ground, and we were not struck by lightning. Well, the Sea of Galilee has a history of such violent storms because of high winds that sometimes sweep down upon the lake, which is nearly 700 feet below sea level. And so you have these different temperatures from the upper part to the lower, and you get these wind storms. And uh, we see a couple of instances of this in the Galilee ministry period of Jesus. In this instance, the boat's beginning to take on water. But Jesus is asleep. Interesting that he's sleeping. He's sleeping. We see His humanity. And when He is awakened, we see His deity in the command of nature. So Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. He's subject to weariness and frailty. We see this at times. He's, uh, he hungers and He thirsts. He's been having some intensive days of ministry. And this has been a long day. He's told all these parables, teaching... Sometimes they were not even able to eat, we're told, um, or to rest properly because of the press of the crowds. Uh, Regardless, he is dead to the world, we might say. Snoozing away, resting, he's at peace, even while the storm rages around him. Now, Jesus is not soundly asleep only because he's exhausted. He is able to sleep through this storm and this precarious situation because he knows his Father intimately. Jesus' testimony is that I always do those things that please him. Thus he has unbroken fellowship with the Father. His is a perfect faith as a man and a perfect trust. The faith of a small child who trusts that his parents are going to take care of him, protect him, feed him. Etc. Most of us had good parents that would watch out for us, and when we were small, we—most of us—I don't think—we're thinking about, wow, where's my next meal coming from? And we were trusting our parents. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. The, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, "Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" And Jesus calls a little child to him, set him in the midst of them. And said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is fully at rest in his father's care. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I think many times we suffer because our minds are stayed on the wrong things. So the apostles are in great fear like the family in a small boat on the Ohio River the boat going down. Now there are a good number of them are experienced boatmen and fishermen upon this lake. They're familiar with the storms that arise and so they know they have good reason for concern. It's not just that they're ignorant of what the danger might be. These guys have dealt with these storms and they're afraid they're going to die. Theirs is not a groundless fear. They're in real danger based on their experience. Uh, Warren Weersby points out that Jonah ended up in a storm because of his disobedience. And you recall the sailors trying to find any way out of this and Jonah, being the righteous man that he is, <laughs> Now just throw me overboard and everything will be fine. And he was right. But the storm was there because of Jonah's disobedience. But uh, Wiersbe goes on to say, but the disciples got into a storm because of their obedience to the Lord. He says, hey guys, let's go to the other side. And they do what Jesus says and they're in the middle of this tremendous storm. So um, these guys are in trouble because they're doing what Jesus said to do. Troubles don't always arise from disobedience, although that too may be the case. Sometimes, or someone has said there are storms of correction, and there are storms of instruction. And so we must be careful in judging one another. Look at all that that's happened to them. They must be living terribly, or the Lord wouldn't let that happen. Now, sometimes you're obeying the Lord, and the storm comes. Well, these guys don't want to wake up Jesus. This is not something a disciple does to his master. And they know he's worn out. They no doubt wait until they believe they have no choice. Their hope of deliverance is rapidly fading. And they wake Jesus. And their first words to him are, Don't you care? Obviously, if he cared, he would be awake. He'd be doing his Messiah thing. He wouldn't be sleeping in the first place. They believe he can do something to help, but I'm not sure they know what. What can any man do against the elements? Is he a good oarsman? It's unlikely. What are his qualifications? Well, he's a good teacher. He could say, well, point the boat more this way. Let me help you get through these waves and those waves. I mean, he's a carpenter. He could design a better boat. It's a little late for that at this point. I mean, what can he do? Give him a bucket. He can help bale water. We know he's not strong like a fisherman. He's just this carpenter guy. G. Campbell Morgan said, It was not a request to him to do anything, but a protest against his apparent indifference. Of course, it's hard to not be indifferent when you're asleep. This is panic time for the disciples, not logic time. And what he does is not what they expect. What he does is far from their thinking, far from their expectations. He speaks to the wind, the boisterous wind. He rebukes the sea, the tumultuous waters. Jesus spoke mostly to conscious entities in his ministry, men and devils. But he spoke at times to disease, sickness, debilitation, and death. He was speaking to the person who was being affected by these things, but he was addressing the underlying condition. And Jesus' words never went without effect. But here he speaks to inanimate creation. Now sometimes the prophets would be told to do this. Ezekiel, God told him, speak to the mountains. Prophesy to the mountains, Ezekiel. Talk to those dead bones so Jesus speaks words to this inanimate creation. He issues commands to the wind and the sea, and they obey Him. We find a significant passage in Psalm 107, starting in verse 23. He speaks of those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters. They see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go again down again to the depths. So these guys are... He's talking about these who go down to the sea in ships and they're going up, way up. And they're coming way down. He said their soul melts because of trouble. Great fear. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. He says, and are at their wit's end. There's nothing they can do. They can't think of anything else to do. And then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distresses. Uh, Somebody else has pointed out that Jesus wasn't awakened by the storm or the waves or the water coming in. But he was awakened by the cry of the disciples when they called out to him. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. He brings them out of their distresses. And what does He do? He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they're glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. And this is the same thing He promises to do for us. in these storms that we encounter. He's promised to bring us to our desired haven uh, where He took Becky. He says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt Him also in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the company of the elders. I know this is speaking of the Lord, the works of the Lord, all caps. They cry out to the Lord. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. He's the one doing these things with the storm and the calming of the waves and so forth. In Psalm 65 Starting in verse 5, it says, By awesome deeds in righteousness you will answer us, O God of our salvation, this is who they're addressing, who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult, tumult of the peoples. Uh, the, the Jews of this day, because of these passages, and more believe that only God could calm the storm and the raging seas. Psalm 89, verses 6-9 through 9, says, Who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Again, in all caps, the name of God. Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. You see, There's a good fear and a bad fear, and to be held in reverence by all those around him. This is a good fear, a reverence of the Lord, concern about displeasing him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So Jesus in this miracle gives us yet another indication of who he is in reality. The Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, clothed in human flesh. God become man, but never ceasing to be God. And this man asked them, why are you so fearful? He doesn't get an answer, presumably, at least not one that is recorded for us, but they must be thinking It was the natural thing to do to be afraid, to be very afraid. What do you mean, why are you so fearful? But they are a bit in shock by this experience. Then he asked, how is it that you have no faith? Uh, Well, Lord, we weren't really thinking about faith. We were thinking about perishing. The questions elicit no verbal response. But we're told that they feared exceedingly. This is a different fearfulness than they had in the storm. Jesus has done some amazing things up to this point. He's, he's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's done some miracles. He's do, He's been astoundingly teaching God's truth. He has extreme claims of authority at times. For example, when he said he was the Lord of the Sabbath, that's pretty extreme unless it's true. But now he commands creation, and creation obeys immediately. He has power over nature in all its manifold manifestations. We're told in Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen, He Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. So He's he's created all things. He has power over all creation, and in Him all things hold together. That's what consisting is. And if he stops holding them together, then they will fly apart. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct? And godliness. Well, who is this guy, is the Apostle's question, and the obvious answer causes them great fear. Up to now, they may have considered him a prophet or even the Messiah, a man sent from God, one who works miracles like Elijah or Elisha, but in this he exhibits the power of God himself. He does not say, The Lord rebuke you, sea and wind, as a prophet might, But he speaks directly and with his own authority as he is submitted to the Father. And they are struck with fear being in his presence. They also ask, what manner or kind of man is this? Well, he is true man. Man as man was created to be. If you want to see God's original design for man apart from sin, Jesus is the place to look. And those who... Uh, believe in Him or redeemed by Him will be conformed to His image and His likeness. That's the ultimate goal that He has for us. So as mentioned, there's a good fear and a bad fear. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is a reverential fear to hold someone in awe. It's a supreme respect. And this is good. In Psalms 130, verses 3 and 4, he says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, held in reverence again. Now, if there wasn't any forgiveness available from God, there wouldn't be any point in fearing Him. But because there is forgiveness available, that good fear has a purpose. Well, these words, the fear words have shades of meaning, so the proper interpretation must be determined by the context. The fear of the Lord is good, but God does not want those who believe in him to be afraid of him in the sense of condemnation or a cowering fear. First John chapter four and verse 15, John writes and says, "Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, good fear, bad fear he who fears has not been made perfect in love. That's a, a fear of being condemned by the Lord. We know Romans 8.1 says, There is no, therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 19, We, loved, we love Him because He first loved us. So Jesus says, Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He also says to His followers, Luke twelve thirty two, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. John 14, 1, He tells them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. Well, we're told that the apostles fear exceedingly after the sea becomes calm. Exceedingly. That's a lot. They're really afraid. Someone has pointed out that they were more afraid of the calm than they were of the storm. This is exceeding fear now. They were just fearful before. (laughs) He is found in form as a man. How much greater their fear would be if he revealed himself as he did later to John on the Isle of Patmos. John fell at his feet as dead. This is an involuntary reaction of a sinful being in the revealed presence of the Holy God. Now Jesus tells John as he always did his followers when they fell down as dead. Revelation 1:17 and 18, it says, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Uh, It's a good study, uh, looking at all the places where the Lord tells us not to be afraid, not to fear, some 18 times. That's in the New Testament. So Jesus doesn't want those who believe in him to be afraid in his presence. He does not desire to harm them, but to bless them. John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am generally, nearly universally opposed to the allegorization of Scripture. It has led to many gross misinterpretations and misapplications of Scripture, making it say something that it was never intended to say. The real danger in allegorizing Scripture is that uh, so much of it then becomes uh, meaningless other than a lesson that we're to learn from it, and so it loses its a true and historical value. This passage in Mark is a real historical narrative. It's not merely a story given to teach us nice spiritual lessons. The storm was real. Jesus' words were really spoken and the natural elements of the world responded. They had no choice but to respond. Their creator and master commanded them. But this passage does lend itself quite naturally and I think legitimately to allegorization. We all experience storms in life. If you've never experienced a storm, then you are extremely young or (laughs) extremely blessed or extremely oblivious. One has said a believer is always either entering a storm, going through a storm, or coming out of a storm. We live in a stormy environment spiritually. We live... All people live in the monsoon or the hurricane season of creation. That's the nature of a fallen world. So we're going to encounter storms. The storms of life take many forms. They may blow fiercely in financial concerns or the waves may rage health-wise. There may be imminent physical dangers from beasts or man. There may be wars and rumors of wars. Storms may arise from a, a government that is hostile to Christian truth and morals. Uh, much of our current government is. And of course, I was thinking about this. I can't think of a government that's not hostile at this point in time to uh, Christian truth, Christian morals. We may fear the storm of f- failure or rejection. Our storm may be entirely in our own imagination wondering about what might happen. We're able to whip up a great storm from very little or even no wind. We're subject to fearfulness as human beings in a fallen and corrupt creation. It's only in Jesus that we can find peace in the storm, or for that matter, before the storm or after the storm. It's been said that 90% of the things we worry about never happen. I looked it up. I thought it was probably a higher percentage. I found anything from, most say 90, some say 85, but there's a new study that's been done which sets the record straight, 91% of the things we worry about that never happen. C.H. Spurgeon said, our fears are often intensely silly, and when we get over them and ourselves look back upon them, we are full of shame that we should have been so foolish. But worry is a subsidiary of fear. I worry about things that I fear will happen or that are happening. And the Lord wants to vanquish our ungodly fears. In Luke 21 again, 31 and 32, he says, Seek the kingdom of God and all these things, that is the cares of this life, shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Listen. There's no condemnation in Jesus. We are subject to fear by nature, and the Lord understands this. He desires to release us from fear, not to castigate or condemn us for being fearful. Jesus' words to his apostles are a mild rebuke. Why are you so fearful? It's not like, why are you afraid at all? But how come you're afraid to this extent? How is it that you have no faith? Jesus has been with them for some time now. Perhaps they should be further along than they are. But He knows them, and He understands their weaknesses. He never trades them in for more spiritual disciples. Okay, you guys flunk one more test of faith, and you're out of here. He never gives them that kind of a statement. As a matter of fact, in John 13, 1, this night when He was being betrayed, it says... Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And having loved you, he will love you to the end. He will not give up on you. He will be with you and he will do what it takes to complete his work in you. Philippians 1, 6. Recall the first thing the apostles asked Jesus when they awakened him. Don't you care that we are perishing? This is typically the first thought, spoken or not, when we're in a raging storm. Don't, Lord, don't you care? I thought you said you love me. How can you let this happen or continue happening? Why? Where are you, God? When is another big question. When, O Lord, will you answer my prayer? When will you avenge the persecution of your people? Unless we arrive at the correct answer to this question, do you care, our faith can be shipwrecked. Of course, we're not the first to struggle with this question. Believers throughout the ages have had occasion to ask the same question. And we find answers and comforts in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, but also in the experience of the apostles here. You know, many times we struggle more in the small storms than we might in the large storms. When we realize that this is totally beyond us, that there's nothing we can do to deliver ourselves, we're more likely to look to that resource, but as long as we're able to kind of figure things out, you know, well, let me try this. This might work or that might work. And it's only as the storm keeps building that we think, Oh, hey, maybe I should ask the Lord to turn this over to Him. As with the apostles, we can be slow to call upon the Lord in our storms. They waited until the boat was going down to awaken Him. And we may exhaust all other options before turning to Him. Yet He is our hope. He is our strength. He is the very present help in time of trouble. To delay is to cause ourselves unneeded grief. But why should the apostles have had more confidence in the storm? Why should their fear have been mitigated and their faith encouraged? There are a couple of reasons. First, who is in the boat? We are, they say. Oh yeah, Uh, Jesus is in the boat too, come think of it. And he's asleep. We're not told, but I'm sure his brow is not even furrowed. Will God allow Jesus to drown? In Mark 14:21, he he says, "The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him." He doesn't go by drowning, you know. And that could that could be a black mark on your record as a disciple if you allow the Messiah to drown, you know. Typically would not be a good thing on your resume. In a great storm, it matters who is with you in the storm or who is with you in the boat. Is the Coast Guard involved? Are there trained rescue teams searching for those needing help? Men may or may not be able to help in a storm, but there is no one better to be with in a storm. Or maybe it should be said there's no one better to have with you in a storm. And Jesus, he was with the apostles and he has promised to be with you who believe in him. He is with you. He is in exactly the same situation that you are. He's in the boat with you, whatever storm you are in or will be in. There was a song by, uh, written by Lenny LeBlanc on his very first, you know, when he became a believer, his very first album. And it's titled, A Sleep in the Boat. In verse in chorus here, he says, The wind of the Spirit has filled your sails, made to you the promise that He will never fail. He steered you straight and steady, and your sky was clear. But now a storm is rising. Your belief has turned to fear. And you say, Sometimes it seems that He's nowhere to be found. And just when you're about to sink, He commands the sea to lay down. He's just asleep in the boat. Don't you worry, just keep rowing. He's just asleep in the boat, but he knows where he's going. Where is your faith? Is it broken in the waves? Of course, he is not asleep in the storms of our lives today. He doesn't sleep anymore. Sometimes it seems like it. We might think he's asleep, but we trust Jesus. We may not see him. We may not see his hand moving, but he's not sleeping now. Amy Carmichael wrote it, said it this way, Thou art the Lord who slept upon the pillow. Thou art the Lord who soothed the furious sea. What matter beating wind and tossing billow, if only we are in the boat with thee. It's up to us to get in the boat with him. Another has said it's better to be in the storm with Jesus than to be in the calm without him. The promise of His presence has continued from the beginning for those who trust in Him. In Hebrews 13, uh, verses 5 and 6, we're told, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So there's no fear of man in this presence of the Lord. This promise was first given to the people of Israel and then specifically to a man named Yeshua, the one we know as Joshua. Uh, He was told several times, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He was commanded to be strong and courageous numerous times on the basis of this promise. And of course, Yeshua is also the Hebrew name of the Lord Jesus. It means Yahweh is salvation. He was named so because he will save his people from their sins. In Joshua chapter one and verse nine, the Lord speaking to Joshua says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. This faith in the promised presence of God is an antidote to fear. Not that fear will not try to assert itself. The devil will make sure of that. He desires to strike fear in the hearts of God's people. But we can have confidence that the Lord is with us in all circumstances. He has promised it to be so. He says, fear not. Our fear can be mitigated at The least by the promise of his presence, even if we do not sense it. His promise is not dependent upon our senses. We walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. It is by faith that we find strength and courage because he is with us. In Psalms 46, verses 1 through 3. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Psalm 56.3 says simply, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. There's another implied promise from which the apostles could have received confidence and strength in the midst of their storm on the sea. This is the word of Jesus, which he spoke to them as they departed. He said to them, let us cross over to the other side. This gives meaning to his question put to them. How is it that you have no faith? He's not asking about an ethereal, general or subjective faith. He's asking about a faith with an objective basis. Guys, I told you we're going to the other side. Why is it you have no faith in what I've said? They have a specific word from the Lord of His will. We're going to the other side. Not We're going down in the middle of the sea. Hey guys, let's go drown. Jesus has given them the destination and He will assure that they get there. One has said He promised a safe arrival and the disciples could have chosen to trust in that promise, but they didn't. In this sense, they had no faith. If he had said, you guys go to the other side, as he did in a later storm, perhaps they could not have been so confident, although they still would have had his word implying that they would reach the other side. But he's with them. Let's go to the other side. He's with them in the body, not just in the spirit. So they have two things to take confidence in. He's with them in the boat. His experience is their experience, and he has spoken a specific word to them about their destination. We may not have a specific word from the Lord concerning the storm that we are riding out. We may not know his specific will, but we can have plenty of we have plenty of general promises that are good, sound, and reliable in which we can take confidence. We can be strong and of good courage in the midst of the storm because we know His word to us is good. He has never reneged on a promise. Indeed, He cannot do so. It's against His nature. Thank God that He is unable to lie. And when He speaks and we have His words in Scripture, we can fully trust what He says. Titus 1-2 when Jesus told another story about a storm in Matthew chapter 7, And beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So we don't want to trust in the words of man more than the words of God. Let's build our houses on Jesus' words, not on anyone else's words. There's no foundation in man's words. Jesus' words are the rock. They will never fail. They will never pass away. They're the only foundation for faith.